Welcome to the Imposture to Unstoppable podcast, where physicians can learn how to overcome imposter syndrome and create the career of their dreams. Hey there. Before we jump in today, I wanted to tell you about the three-month program that I have available to you. It is really all about reclaiming your true nature and leaning into your spirituality and learning how to incorporate that into your medical career. So few of us are feel comfortable really embracing the spirituality that we feel to be true in our lives. And looking back, I realized that really recognizing who I fundamentally am at my core was the one thing that propelled me to overcome imposter syndrome and get over my self-doubt and stop caring about other people's opinions and ultimately make me a much better doctor and a more fulfilled one. So if you're interested in doing this work and really learning how to allow your spirituality to um, take a place in your career um, and fulfill the nature that you know to be true at your core, then check that out. Check out the link in the um, episode details, or you can go to kristinyatesdo.com and then click on three-month experience. Let's jump into today's episode. Dr. Minako Abe is a dual board certified physician in the United States in emergency medicine and lifestyle medicine. She found that while treating patients in the emergency room, that nearly 80% of them had conditions or illnesses where they were related to unhealthy lifestyle choices. That prompted an interest in lifestyle medicine. Since 2014, she has worked as a director of the International Society for Personalized Medicine. She is also the vice president of the Tokyo Cancer Clinic and is actively engaged in research and activities to further the fields of lifestyle, cellular immunotherapy, and regenerative medicine. Minako, how are you today? Thank you for joining me. Hi, Kristen. Thank you so much for having me. So let's dive in and tell me what comes to mind for you when talking about imposter syndrome. Okay. Well, I think where I first remember encountering imposter syndrome is um, my first year of residency. You know, one day you're just a student and then the next day you're you know, hi, I'm Dr. Minako Abe, how can I help you? And just that feeling of um, who am I to say, you know, I'm a doctor, you know, am I really supposed to be here? It just seemed a little bit strange or weird. Um, And I matched in a residency program um, in emergency medicine. And it was a fairly competitive program in New York City. And I was the only female in my whole residency class. So, um, and I think as a female, we all sort of have this sort of hazing that happens when you first start, start out, you know, especially by, you know, the nurse, nurses. And I, I love our nurses, <laughs> but, you know, they have so much more um, experience than you do. So, you know, and, and you learn from them and, you know, they end up learning from you and you learn to develop this mutual respect. But I felt that, you know, I won't call it bullying, but, you know, there definitely is a hazing process. Um, just in residency in general, but, um, and also just being in New York city, you think that it's a very diverse community. People are used to seeing people that look all sorts of ways and I'm Japanese. Um, but I remember many times I was refused to be seen by patients. You know, they said, well, I don't want that. I don't want to be seen by some chinky doctor, chinky Mm -hmm. female doctor. 
So uh, that was something that came up for me quite a bit. And so, you know, so I said, okay, well, you can wait. Or being, you know, once residency was done and I wasn't attending, um, you know, if I was the only one on, you know, single coverage overnight, then I would send the, you know, the white male fourth year medical student, <laughs> you know, I'm like, okay, well, if you don't want to see me, then I'll send him in and they can see you and um, they'll report to me. But so um, I think that's just something that, you know, everyone deals with. I'm sure most female physicians also deal with, you know, being mistaken as a nurse or as a tech or not necessarily being the doctor. So I think that was, you know, maybe not my first experience, but probably one of the more uh, memorable experiences of being a doctor. And it's actually kind of ironic, right? Because, um, you know, in New York, you know, well, I think in the United States in general, Asians are considered to often be the model minority or the sort of token white <laughs> minority group. Um, but even so, I felt that I was like too Asian in a way and maybe a little bit discriminated because of that. And then um, seven years ago, I actually moved to Japan. And here, I lived in the US for about 30 years. And so my first language was English and all of my education was in English. And then I came back to Japan um, to help my father out. He has a private practice um, in cellular immuno-oncology here. And, um, you know, when I was here, I was kind of like to non-Japanese. <laughs> I wasn't Japanese enough. And then starting to have to relearn the language pretty much from scratch. Um, like my first three years here was spent pretty much just immersing myself in the language to relearn it from scratch and having to also run um, a private practice clinic, which was way, way, way out of my comfort zone, right? I was mm -hmm. an ER doctor and I figured I was just gonna be a worker bee, you know, happily employed for the rest of my life. So this was something that was not sort of expected. So again, um, on top of the not being able to speak the language and communicate very well, then I also had to sort of fill the shoes of being an entrepreneur and running a business. So that was like a whole nother field of discomfort. <laughs> Wow. So, so much to unpack here. This is awesome. So yeah. I want to go back to the beginning where you mentioned that there were some real external factors telling you that you didn't belong. And that's unfortunate. Um, and it still happens today. And I think that that's something that I want to bring up because it's really hard to battle imposter syndrome, which is you know, a normal part of humans. And we all mm -hmm. experience that, but it's hard to counter that in your own mind when you're, there are people telling you that they don't want you as their doctor. And it's hard to have that internal voice saying that you don't belong. And then having external voices say you don't belong because of your gender or your race or whatever else your age, it could be anything. So I want to bring it up because I, th I think that there's unfortunately many physicians who deal with this to some form or another. And it's important because I think when we talk about it more and, and when we bring it to light, hopefully we can eventually change the, di change the dialogue that people are saying, like a doctor can look any sort of way, first of all. But second of all, for those physicians who might not look like their peers, it doesn't mean that they don't belong. It means that 
that's where exactly where they need to be because if no one else looks like them then we need that needs to change that's the problem it's not that they're the only one and they got there by mistake it's that they're the only one and that's needs to be fixed because it means that there's too much similarities going there's too many similarities going on and not enough diversity yeah absolutely and that was one thing that surprised me i figured being in new york city and one of the most diverse places in in the United States, let alone the world. (laughs) Um, But, you know, these things are just ingrained with us. And I think, Mm -hmm. you know, what I take away from it is when somebody has such a strong sort of emotional reaction and in turn, when I have a strong emotional reaction to something like that, to something external, just sort of meeting it with curiosity and saying, hmm, you know, I wonder, rather than being offended or hurt or trying to change somebody's mind, which generally doesn't work, just sort of approaching it with more sort of curiosity and compassion. I think that's definitely helped. Yeah. That's, I love that you mentioned the curiosity thing because I think Mm -hmm. that's been life-changing. And I Mm -hmm. think if we can teach that to medical students and residents and even early career physicians, then when we can replace that curiosity with instead of having be, be feeling judgment for ourselves and for others, instead of being curious about it, then first of all, it feels a lot better mm-hmm. than judgment. And we yeah. learn so much more about ourselves and about other people by just being open and not, it's tempting to feel offended because they mm-hmm. don't want me or they don't think I'm a good enough doctor. And, but instead inviting curiosity there, like curiosity about, I wonder why they think that that's interesting conditioning, mm-hmm. but also it's curious that I'm offended right now. What's making mm-hmm. me feel offended. And it's usually a limiting belief that we have about ourselves. Like maybe I really don't belong. So I, I, the curiosity thing, I love that you said that because mm-hmm. I think that physicians could use a little bit more curiosity for sure. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, it makes me think of, um, I was at a conference once and there was this really um, elderly doctor um, who I struck up a conversation with and he says, Oh, where are you from? And I said, Oh, I'm from Japan. And he said, Japan. Oh yeah. When I was in Guam, we whooped their asses in, <laughs> in Guam. And I was just kind of taken aback. I was like, Whoa, <laughs> I'm like that seemed like a very inappropriate response. Um, and that really stuck with me. But then I thought, you know, gosh, you know, this is, you know, a guy who's, you know, his late seventies, early eighties. I mean, he must've seen the world through such a different lens. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure he had all sorts of experiences that um, I can't even, you know, fathom. Mm -hmm. Um, So it was interesting to say the least, I guess is his reaction. And so just to remember that everybody comes from a different place. So they see the world through a different lens, I think is helpful too. Yeah. So I want to hear more about moving back to Japan and mm-hmm. completely. So it wasn't just like a cult, like culturally a shift for you, but even professionally too. So yes. how did you, what kind <laughs> of thoughts or what kind of mindset did you have to have in those moments where everything was so new? Mm. It was tough. I mean, the first, you know, three, four years for sure. Um, immersing myself in a culture that I haven't, hadn't lived in for, you know, nearly 30 years. Um, learning the language, learning um, a completely new role, right? Running a uh, clinic and being in charge of other people, um, you know, trying to gain their respect, especially when you feel like, oh, well, you know, this isn't something 
that I've ever done before. Uh, this is something I'm really uncomfortable with. Um, and being able to communicate that. And it made me really realize how important communication is in any language. Um, but especially when there's a little bit of a miscommunication because your you know, language skills aren't perfect. Um, and then the whole field, right? I was a practicing ER doctor. <laughs> and from going to that, because of licensing issues, I actually can't practice here. Like I started on that path, you know, I took all the necessary um, language exams. And then my next step was to take the oral boards and written boards. And then they installed a new rule that um, I had to do two years of residency past that. And that mm. was sort of the straw that <laughs> broke the camel's back. And I said, okay, you know, that I'm just not willing to do because my whole point was to come here to help with my father's um, clinic. You know, he's 82 now. Um, and still practicing, but, you know, Oh my gosh, but less and less, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, you know, and I, you know, it, I can't spend two years away to, um, you know, do a residency, you know, in order to come back. So I didn't really have that sort of luxury of time or even a desire. So, um, so that's been hard. Cause I've, you know, I miss seeing patients. I miss practicing. Um, so, you know, I sort of, had to design other ways of filling that void. And, um, you know, what I came up with is we see cancer patients and cancer patients are just so full of, you know, anxiety, uncertainty of the future. Um, They have all these questions about, you know, how should I be eating? You know, should I be exercising? Should I, you know, what do I do when I can't sleep? And all of these things. So I became more and more interested in lifestyle medicine. So I actually boarded in lifestyle medicine. Um, and I started coaching these patients to try and, you know, help them and to give them sort of a, um, a holistic sort of treatment plan. So when they come here, you know, I would want to coach them and they also, you know, receive treatment. Um, and the treatment is fascinating. And so I've learned so much, um, you know, it's something that I had never heard of in the United States when I was practicing. We basically take, you know, patients' bloods samples and we grow out monocytes from there and then from there we turn them into we use growth factors to turn them into dendritic cells which is an antigen presenting cell and we basically make a cancer vaccine from their own cells so once we take their dendritic cells we pulse them with um, cancer antigens so depending on each patient's cancer like you might have a lot of HER2 positive cells or other um uh, you know, PSA positive, uh, you know, cancer. So every single person has different markers and different um, cancer antigens associated with their cancer. So we would basically teach the dendritic cells, like these are the antigens you want to go after. And then they would, um, that would become a cellular um, cancer vaccine, which we would re-inject to the patient and they would mount an immune response that would target those particular cancer cells. So wow. that's the whole new field of regenerative medicine that we've been doing here. So we've, we would do that and also do transfusions of autologous um, natural killer cells. So in combination, it's actually, you know, we've been getting some really amazing results. And so it's fascinating. It's something that, you know, I never would have been exposed to um, mm-hmm. in the United States. And we actually have a lot of patients who come from all over the world to try and um, do our therapies. So unfortunately, that's stopped quite a bit since um, COVID, Uh you know, stopped traffic, travel. So, um, so now we're sort of 
trying to figure out new ways to pivot, to bring more, you know, local business and doing other things and, um, and then trying to coach uh, patients and uh, also expats, basically Americans and Europeans and um, that are currently living in Japan because they can't get back home to their own countries Mm. (laughs) for treatment. And um, I guess, you know, sort of keeping an open mind about what there is to offer in other countries and other cultures. And um, that, um, you know, medicine is actually, I think we were always told that, you know, the United States was at the forefront of all the research and all the different treatments and therapies, but it's also extremely, extremely expensive. And in Japan, we have socialized medicine, which I thought, well, you know, the care is not going to be as good here, but it's actually really, you know, surprising. It has been surprising to me um, what has been offered. Um, Just a personal backstory. um, When we first moved here, my husband actually was diagnosed with this rare spinal cord tumor. And so I kind of freaked out about it. And I was contacting my colleagues back at home saying, okay, you know, where should I take him to get a surgery and all that? And um, to my surprise, um, the neurosurgeons in the U.S. said, you know, you stay right where you are because the um, technology is so far advanced here and they have, you know, some really great surgeons here. So we ended up staying here and um, getting treated here. And, you know, luckily everything worked out. So, um, yeah, I guess another message would be just take advantage of what is around you and keep your eyes Mm -hmm. open. And there's so much new to learn. And I think that's probably what has kept me from getting unstuck, you know, just continuing to learn and grow and stretch and be uncomfortable (laughs) and all of those things. Um, And then just really learning how to be uncomfortable in my own skin and and that's okay. You know, that's Mm -hmm. how we grow and that's how we learn. And then I think later on, you can look back and see, oh my gosh, wow, I actually, you know, I felt maybe I felt uncomfortable every step of the way, but I've really, you know, gone far when you, when you turn around and look, and I still suffer from it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I think that the discomfort and, and being, and recognizing that that's a normal part of growth. And I think that we're so used to just in general as human beings, like we're so used to just thinking that eventually someday we're going to arrive somewhere and not feel uncomfortable anymore, but that's not actually what happens. And the recognition that being uncomfortable means that you're doing everything right. And it means that Mm -hmm. you're growing and you're putting yourself out there and it doesn't mean anything has gone wrong. And that's really a powerful message. And I love that you said, look around and see what's around you. But I think that also what you've done and you're a great example of of you is you looked inside of you too. And you said, and you were able to look at what you, all you've accomplished and then still said, I, whatever skill set I have, and I know that I can continue to grow and I can handle anything that happens no matter what. And I think that that's something that we can really learn from too. Oh, thanks. Yeah, I still, I mean, I still suffer from it. Um, last week, I gave a talk um, in Japanese. And, you know, public speaking is not one of my fortes. It's not one of those things that I like to do, but I'm learning to do. <laughs> and um, particularly public speaking in Japanese is really hard for me. So, um, and, you know, it didn't go quite as well as I would have liked it to, you know, and I had some feedback that was not like the best. Um And again, it kind of goes back to my own insecurities, you know, and I say, well, why did 
this bothered me so much that, you know, someone made a negative comment or, Mm -hmm. you know, somebody said, I think, you know, can she not read the Japanese that's written on the screen, you know, something like that. And yeah, I'm not as fluent as everybody. And, you know, I still struggle. Um, But then I realized that the reason why I was feeling so badly about that was really because it was tapping into, you know, the core insecurities that I have Mm -hmm. about being able to communicate and language and stuff. So once you kind of analyze it for yourself and realize that and say, you know what, um, this is what I take away from it. And next time I'll do better. And you just kind of keep on at it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I think that the impo- you know, imposter syndrome is just like a part of our brain that exists. And it, which means when we say like, oh, we can overcome imposter syndrome or it doesn't affect us anymore. It doesn't mean that we don't hear that voice because that voice is a part of our brains and it never goes anywhere. And I think it's just the recognition of that and it's going to pop up, but it's going to pop up when we do something new or when we're feeling a little bit stressed or overwhelmed, but it's like, we, we know now that there's like a volume knob that we have Mm -hmm. access to, and we can just turn it down a little bit and choose instead to do things anyway, or, you know, use it as a learning opportunity instead of an opportunity to beat ourselves up. All right. No, I love that you said, you know, we do it anyway, because <laughs> yeah. it's not going to go away ever, right. I think. And, you know, but you can definitely tamp it down and do things to sort of help you see and get over it faster, I guess, yeah. <laughs> or to yeah. do things despite of it, in spite of it. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Well, great. Minako, thank you so much. It was so great talking to you. Anything oh, else you, you wanted to um, mention before we let you go? Um. Well, thank you so much for doing this work. I think um, your work definitely resonates with a lot of us, Um, you know, and it just helps everybody, I think, become better physicians and just better people in general and helps um, people understand each other, which is sort of at the core of everything. So thank you for doing that.